From Pacifica Radio, this is Democracy Now! There are 23 million Iraqi people waiting for a fulfillment of the promise for a better life. I think it is a tremendous challenge for the UN Security Council to quickly bring that better life through lifting of sanctions. The UN Security Council meets today to discuss a U.S. proposal to lift the sanctions on Iraq and give U.S. occupation forces full control of Iraq's oil. We'll talk to the former head of the UN Oil for Food program who resigned in the year 2000 in protest of UN sanctions. And then we'll speak with an anti-apartheid activist and priest who is the victim of an apartheid-era assassination attempt. Relatives and victims, relatives of victims and survivors in South Africa are very disappointed at the recent announcements by President Becky of final reparations because it is only about one-third of what was recommended by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Today, Father Michael Lapsley and Hans von Sponek. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. President Bush is coming under criticism for focusing on Saddam Hussein and Iraq instead of the threat of al-Qaeda following Monday's triple car bomb blast in Saudi Arabia that killed at least 29, including seven Americans and nine attackers. Almost 200 people are believed to be wounded. Senator Bob Graham, Democrat of Florida, said yesterday, quote, The war on Iraq was a distraction. It took us off the war on terror, which we were on a path to win, but we have now let it slip away from us. Graham, former chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee, is running for president. He says the U.S. failed in averting both the September 11th attacks and Monday night's attacks. President Bush vowed a swift response Tuesday to the attack, declaring that, quote, the United States will find the killers and they will learn the meaning of American justice. He went on to say, anytime anybody attacks our homeland or our fellow citizens, we will be on the hunt. We will bring them to justice. Just ask the Taliban. The State Department has ordered all non-essential diplomatic personnel and their families to leave Saudi Arabia. And officials, State Department, the FBI, and the CIA have been dispatched to Saudi Arabia to investigate the bombing. U.S. and Saudi officials say they believe al-Qaeda carried out the attack. In an email message sent yesterday to an Arabic-language magazine in London, a man U.S. officials say they believe is an al-Qaeda operative described the attack as having been well-prepared and said further strikes might lie ahead. Saudi and U.S. officials had warnings that an attack might be imminent. Last week, at least 19 al-Qaeda suspects who were under surveillance shot their way out of a police trap. 
The seven Americans known to have been killed were employees of a local subsidiary of the Fairfax-based Vinnell Corporation contracted to train the Saudi Arabian National Guard. It is the second time in eight years that the Saudi business interests of Vinnell, which is owned by Northrop Grumman, have come under attack. A November 1995 car bomb blast destroyed a building in the Saudi capital that was headquarters for the U.S. Army training program in which Vanell was deeply involved. The Times of London, uh, the Times of London reports some believe Vanell to be a front group for the CIA. In related news, the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom has criticized the State Department for failing to designate Saudi Arabia as one of the world's most egregious violators of human rights and as an exporter of extremist Islam. The criticism came in the Commission's annual report, which was issued yesterday. The report called on the State Department to press Saudi Arabia to overhaul school curricula that they say explicitly promotes hatred of Jews, Christians, and members of non-Wahhabi strands of Islam. Newsday reports Saudi Arabia, the world's biggest oil exporter and longtime U.S. ally, has never been placed on the State Department's watch list of human rights violators despite similar recommendations. This news from Afghanistan. Suspected Taliban sympathizers shot and wounded two Norwegian peacekeepers yesterday in a daytime ambush north of the Afghan capital of Kabul. Taliban sympathizers and their allies have recently warned foreigners to leave Afghanistan and have stepped up attacks against American and other foreign troops. In Iraq, U.S. soldiers are going to be given the authority to shoot looters on site. This according to the New York Times. This comes as the U.S. has vowed to hire more police officers and ban ranking members of the Ba'ath Party from public service. The new U.S. Administrator, Paul Bremer, announced the changes at a meeting with senior staffers in Iraq yesterday. Meanwhile, the Washington Post is reporting that U.S. authorities have rejected a bid by ethnic Kurds for a stake in the state oil giants of northern Iraq. This comes as U.S. officials postpone plans to remove former high-level members of Saddam Hussein's Ba'ath Party from jobs in the oil industry. The Post reports the American focus on oil production first and new leadership later has upset Kurdish leaders who'd hoped the end of Hussein's regime and the arrival of their longtime allies would gain them entree into the political system and the oil industry. The U.S. has expelled 14 Cuban diplomats. Washington has issued no formal accusations, but the BBC and Agence France Presse are reporting that State Department officials have accused the diplomats of spying. Seven of the diplomats worked at the United Nations. The other seven worked at the Cuban interest section in Washington. Tensions between the U.S. and Cuba have been increasing since March when Cuba jailed 75 dissidents and executed three men who tried to hijack a ferry bound for the United States. U.S. diplomats walked out of a U.N. meeting last month after Cuba was reelected to the U.N. Human Rights Commission. Israeli forces killed three Palestinians and wounded 30 others after firing a missile into a crowd in the Khan Yunus refugee camp in Gaza. Nearby tanks and bulldozers destroyed Palestinian homes. Later that night, Palestinian rescue workers said Israeli soldiers opened fire on a Palestinian police post 
killing three and wounding two. On Wednesday, 10 soldiers were wounded in a mortar attack on a Gaza base, and three Israelis were injured when a homemade rocket fired from Gaza hit a nearby Israeli town. The Washington Post is reporting Chile is recalling its ambassador to the United States and replacing him with a former classmate of Condoleezza Rice. The former ambassador, Juan Gabriel Valdez, is a socialist who opposed U.S. policy regarding Iraq. The Post reports the conciliatory move is aimed at getting the U.S. to sign a free trade agreement that Washington put off after Chile refused to support the invasion of Iraq. A massive public sector strike in France has brought the country to a standstill, literally. Planes, trains, buses, and subways were shut down, as were many classrooms and schools. Stranded passengers and commuters piled up at stations. The strikers are protesting a proposed reform to France's pension system. The Republican-controlled House of Representatives will allow the federal ban on Uzis and other semi-automatic weapons to expire. The announcement by House Leader Tom DeLay is a major victory for the National Rifle Association and the gun lobby. The weapons were banned a decade ago by former President Clinton. And this just in, at least 10 people have been killed and several more wounded in another attack in Chechnya. Interfax News Agency quoted an official in the pro-Moscow administration as saying the attack had taken place at a funeral and have been carried out by a female suicide bomber in the village of Ilishkan Yurt. This comes just two days after a suicide bombing on Monday in which 54 people died and a government compound was destroyed. Thousands of bodies have been found in a mass grave near Hilla in central Iraq. Distraught Iraqis are digging and sifting through the site with their bare hands, desperately searching for remains of their loved ones. The victims are believed to have been killed in 1991 during the Shia uprising that was violently crushed after the Gulf War. The U.S. failed to support the Shia uprising and allowed the Iraqi army to use helicopters to crush the rebellion. Human rights groups are calling on U.S. and British forces to do more to protect the site and preserve crucial evidence of a mass killing. Packages of peace with meditations from the east. Gallons of laughter, barrels of joy. Oh, what a great world it would be! And it would all be free for people like you and me. You are listening to Democracy Now!, The War and Peace Report, If We Had Peace, by Harlem River Drive. I'm Amy Goodman. U.S. occupation forces in Iraq will have the authority to shoot looters on sight 
under a new security policy. This according to a report in today's New York Times. The new U.S. ruler of Iraq, Paul Bremer, announced the new policy at a meeting of senior staff members. It's unclear how the occupation forces will inform Iraqis of the new rules of engagement. One of the officials who attended the meeting told the New York Times occupation forces are simply, quote, going to start shooting a few looters so that the word gets around. The security situation in Baghdad is dire. The Agence France Press reports there are regular carjackings, nightly gun battles, organized crime gangs are terrifying residents. Many people in Baghdad, especially women, are afraid to leave their homes and walk the streets. The streets are literally piled with refuse and sewage. Many houses are still without running water or electricity. New York Times reports imposing measures that call for the possible killing of young, unemployed or desperate Iraqis for looting appears to carry a certain level of risk because of the volatile sentiments in the street. Bremer, the new ruler in Iraq, also told officials at the meeting yesterday that ranking members of the Ba'ath Party will be banned from public service. On the same day, U.S. occupation authorities announced the resignation of Ali Shnan, the physician appointed to lead the rebuilding of Iraq's health ministry. Shnan was apparently forced out after refusing to renounce the Ba'ath Party of former President Saddam Hussein. The U.S. head of the health ministry, Stephen Browning, said Ba'athists will be permitted to take senior positions in Iraq only if they sign U.S.-drafted statements renouncing the Ba'ath Party. All of this comes a day after the Iraqi National Congress criticized the U.S. for appointing members of the former ruling Ba'ath Party to head some ministries. Finally, U.N. Security Council members are meeting today for their first con consultations in a controversial draft resolution co-sponsored by the United States and Britain. The draft resolution calls for the immediate lifting of U.N. sanctions on Iraq. Iraqi oil revenues would be put into a new Iraqi assistance fund controlled by U.S. occupation forces. The draft says, quote, the United Nations should play a vital role in providing humanitarian relief, in supporting the reconstruction of Iraq, and in helping the formation of an Iraqi interim authority. Today we're joined by Hans von Sponek, former head of the U.N. Oil for Food program in Iraq. He resigned February of 2000 in protest of the sanctions against Iraq. We welcome you to Democracy Now! Good morning, Amy. It's very good to have you with us. Well, why don't we start off by talking about what the U.N. Security Council is going to be discussing today? Well, the Security Council members, I guess, have one uh, hope uh, in common, and that is that uh, sanctions can be lifted quickly and the Iraqi people can uh, benefit once again from a free flow of goods that they need uh, for their life. The big problem will be uh, that the basis for which, uh, which needs to exist in order to uh, lift these sanctions, there's no agreement on that basis. Uh, the Americans, uh, the British, want to go the easy way, just uh, lift the economic sanctions and then have a rearrangement of uh, uh, the management of the uh, oil for food program, the Iraq oil account, the responsibility for the, uh, uh, for the uh, generation of, uh, of, of oil. All that uh, at, un until now was in the hands 
of uh, the UN Security Council. And uh, there are those in the Security Council who feel that this should continue. Uh, and I think that is what this week in the Security Council will be discussed in great detail. And there is no, to my knowledge, no uh, ag easy agreement in sight. What do you feel should happen right now? I mean, you're one who resigned over the oil for food program in Iraq. If I hear a demand for the lifting of sanctions, I smile, even though it's very difficult to smile in uh, discussing Iraq, because that was my demand uh, three years ago. Uh, but you cannot just lift the sanctions ignoring existing UN resolutions. That would once again mean that the US government, the British government, are very easy uh, when it comes to maintaining or breaking international law. What I would like to see is what the French have proposed, and that is freeze uh, economic sanctions, allow a free flow of the most essential items to come into Iraq while the Security Council debates the way in which these sanctions now should be lifted and who should have what responsibilities in the uh, time to come. Hans von Sponek, your thoughts right now. Uh, I don't think um, I've gotten a chance to speak to you since uh, the U.S. invaded Iraq. Um, now uh, the U.S. is in charge. What are your reflections on what has taken place and now the latest pictures that we're seeing in Iraq? Yeah, it is one of uh, great difficulty to understand how a country uh, that was a strong um, founding member of the United Nations was, a, in fact, a drafter of the very UN Charter that now the government is violating, keeps violating all the time. Uh, it's very difficult for me to understand that a beacon of democracy of the past has become such a violent flame of war in the present time. Um, and who pays the price? Uh, the price for this has been paid by the Iraqi people. Um, I cannot uh, accept statements. It was a short operation. Uh, there were relatively few victims. Well, I would say one child, one man, one woman who died as a result of this illegal war is one too many. And uh, so I am angry. Uh, at the same time, I'm also um, elated by the fact that the UN Security Council did not allow itself to become an institution of war, but that it remained an institution of peace, that they rejected the demands of two member governments to simply ignore the existing charter and uh, go ahead with a preemptive strike which has no place in international law. So that is, I would say, on the plus side. Now one sees what organizations like the Center for Economic and Social Rights who visited Baghdad in uh, January and February predicted. Um, there is an anarchy, the system, uh, the fragile survival system that was built with inadequate uh, sanctioned resources very quickly broke down in the early days of this military confrontation. And what the uh, very um, careful Iraq watchers internationally feared, particularly after listening to uh, Senator Biden and now Senator Lugar's uh, Senate Foreign Relations Committee debate in July and August last year, namely 
that there was a consensus that regime change had to take place. There was almost a consensus that war at that time, at that early time, was unavoidable. The war has come, and it has come without using the time between August when these deliberations took place in Washington and March when the war was started to really come up with a strategy that would look at the situation that would prevail when uh, the United States had won that war. And there was never a question who would win that war. But it is shameful that uh, two um, so-called enlightened world powers were unable to sit down and agree on a post-war strategy that would uh, avoid what we have seen, the humiliation of a national ethos, the, the looting of even a, a museum, the killing that was unnecessary because of the anarchy that broke out. All that should have been if we had responsible uh, politicians uh, dealing with Iraq uh, and uh, things should have been put into place that would have protected the innocent civilian people who have, who have uh, suffered uh, before the war, who have suffered during the war, and who are suffering after the war. We're talking to Hans von Sponek. Uh, he is the former coordinator of the Oil for Food program in Iraq, a former UN Assistant Secretary General. We'll be back with him after this break. Here on Democracy Now!, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Iraqi and Jordanian civilians have filed a lawsuit in a Belgian court accusing the U.S. commander in Iraq, General Tommy Franks, of war crimes. The lawsuit details about 20 incidents which occurred during the invasion of Iraq, including three cases in which U.S. troops are accused of firing on ambulances. The two Jordanian plaintiffs are the widow and the father of Tariq Ayoub, the Jordanian-Palestinian correspondent for the Arab TV network Al Jazeera. Ayoub was killed when a U.S. tank fired uh, when Arik, um, 
Tariq Ayyub was killed at the same time that the U.S. shelled the Palestine Hotel, uh, which killed several journalists there. The U.S. bombed uh, Al Jazeera's offices uh, and killed uh, the reporter who was inside. The Belgian foreign minister, Louis Michel, attacked the lawsuit as an abuse of the law. A spokesman said, quote, the U.S. is a democracy, and I don't see why this lawsuit has not been introduced in that country. He said Belgium has no pretensions to judge the United States. Um, we're continuing our conversation with Hans von Sponek, who was the head coordinator of the Oil for Food program in Iraq until he resigned in 2000, protesting the UN-US sanctions there. I wanted to get your comment on this, on the issue of war crimes. Well, um, it is not surprising that uh, we hear now of claims uh, that are to be made. I would say they need to be very carefully uh, followed and, uh, and justice must prevail. But what I wouldn't like to see is that uh, energies are now siphoned off for the time being from what is number one priority. Yeah. Number one priority is to uh, get the Iraqi population back into some kind of mental and physical equilibrium. Uh, so that's where I think the emphasis must lie now. And all these claims, and there will be many more, uh, they must be looked at very seriously. Justice cannot be just for those who lost the war. Justice must also be for those who won the war. And I would hope uh, that we will not see court after court simply um, ignoring all this uh, concern which ex is expressed by the international public conscience and uh, say they are not having the jurisdiction over these cases. We have seen that many times before, even uh, before the war, that these uh, cases were thrown out much too easily uh, out of national courts. I think uh, that needs to be avoided in, in, in the future. Right now um, in Iraq, uh, we are seeing anarchy. Uh, the people there are experiencing it. What do you say uh, to the U.S. government, uh, people like the Defense Secretary Rumsfeld, um, who has made light of this, saying the media just keeps showing the same vases over and over. Arundhati Roy last night gave a major address in New York and talked about this, saying they're just saying, showing the same images of looting over and over again. But um, that then they say we were able to get rid of Saddam Hussein's power in Iraq. Your response to that? Um, I would say um, the same basis. Um and maybe uh, it looks like the same base, but it has different faces. There are many people in that country who have suffered enormously, uh, who have lost, I don't think there's a household in Iraq today that hasn't been affected by either this war, earlier wars, the dictatorship, sanctions, whatever. So um, to just uh, wipe this off the table by saying this is again an attempt of exaggeration of uh, propaganda, I think is uh, doing grave injustice uh, to a whole nation that has suffered so immensely. You went on the last Center for Economic and Social Rights uh, mission to Iraq. And the report um, that they did, this was right before the invasion that you were a part of, um, said that uh, the country was like a refugee camp, but that the UN sanctions regime had actually basically held the whole country hostage, in a sense, to Saddam Hussein because he controlled the whole program. 
If you were to go back in time, if you could not just rewrite history, but if you were in, um, one of those key players, what do you think should have happened? Uh, at 1990, say, um, even before Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, what do you think could have changed the course of history? First of all, if we are concerned with uh, ways of uh, protecting uh, the Iraqi people, then uh, this concept of the smart or intelligent sanctions should have been introduced much, much earlier. There was a feeble attempt, as you know, uh, in 2001, uh, then passed by the UN Security Council in 2002, to introduce more focused sanctions. Too late. Too much suffering had already occurred. I would say uh, we should, there should be an international agreement that comprehensive economic sanctions should no longer be part of the toolkit to punish leaders in nations that have gone astray somehow, but that one right from the beginning uh, targets uh, the, the perpetrators and protects uh, the civilians as much as is possible. I would, I, that's what I would have done in uh, 1990. Um, that one cannot expect from focused sanctions uh, more than a symbolic effect, I also believe. Um, by freezing uh, travel or bank accounts, that has only a symbolic message. Uh, but one uh, can, by doing that, avoid what we have seen, what UNICEF reported, what other international organizations have so clearly stated, and that is that sanctions, 13 long years, hit the wrong, clearly the wrong target, the innocent particularly the young, the young that had nothing to do with this political conflict, paid the highest price. Um, latest report out of Agence France Press, Washington has encouraged the privatization of the Iraqi oil sector as it seeks to reduce its dependence on Saudi Arabia for oil since the September 11th attacks. This according to the London-based um, IISS security think tank. Since the al-Qaeda attacks in Washington and New York in 2001, the U.S. has also sought oil supply alternatives in the Middle East, particularly to Saudi Arabia. Yeah, it's all part of a package. You uh, want to drop with a parachute uh, the Iraqi equivalent of uh, Karzai, uh, bring democracy, and at the same time uh, introduce a free market economy. Um, so you have a willing government supporting private sector initiatives uh, in the Western world, particularly in the US, that are linked to the power of the day in Washington. It's a very nice package that will enhance exactly what we feared, namely uh, the economic interests of outsiders rather than the economic welfare uh, of insiders. Um, if things go the way they should go, then there should be a, uh, an elected Iraqi government uh, that is in charge of its own affairs, and that would also mean looking after the oil exploration and the oil sales on their own without having a, a former Shell CEO executive standing behind their back to give direction. You, Hans von Sponeck, uh, joined the United Nations Development Program in 1968 
served in Ghana and Turkey. You were the UNDP resident representative in Botswana in 83 and 84, the UN resident coordinator in Pakistan, 85-94, then in India, 94-97, and until your resignation, UN chief humanitarian officer for Iraq. Um, you have lived around the world, uh, worked in many places where there is serious strife. How do you position what is taking place right now and the position of the United States? Uh, where do you think we're headed? I think um, we are heading for a massive confrontation between those who uh, stand in the trenches fighting for a life uh, that has a base of law that is uh, well and well connected to all the good things that the United Nations has created over the last uh, 55, 60 years, meaning uh, human rights, meaning uh, opportunities for development, uh, meaning strengthening governance in, in countries around the world on the one side of the trench and on the other side those who believe that they are the law. They do not look uh, at anything that exists already. They are making law. When uh, Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld says, I do not need to read, I know what I want, uh, then I think uh, one can only get uh, very, very worried. But I also, as an incorrigible optimist, I believe that in the United States are many strong units that will object to this kind of development. So it is not 190 member countries of the United Nations on one side and the US on the other. I don't see it that way at all. I think there's one government on one side and uh, 190 other countries on the other joined by strong groups in the United States. That gives me hope. Uh, I think this is an aberration and it will be classified as an, a short-term aberration in, in, in the history books of our world. So it's right now very worrying tomorrow, um, I think by force, if not by choice, uh, the U.S. will return to the community of nations and be a responsible participant. And finally, Hans von Sponek, the role of the media in this invasion. You've just come to the United States after being abroad. What are your reflections? In Europe, the impression is that the U.S. media has become part of the powerhouse in Washington. I think that's a wrong assessment. Uh, mainstream U.S. media can be uh, referred to in that way. But anyone who knows about the U.S. also knows that there's a vast network like yours uh, Pacifica is one good, good example which is increasingly known now in Europe, but not known enough to make the difference in the perception which is the media in, are hopelessly in, embedded, if you wish, uh, with uh, the powers of the day, with the government in Washington. Um, that is worrying. This compact between media, money, think tanks, and a government. If that continues, I think the American people will continue to be misinformed and therefore unable to take the kind of judgment that we in Europe can take because our media is much, more, much freer, much more democratic. So there should be community pressure for change in the U.S. Why is it different? Why is the media there different? 
Why? Because the media is not so uh, intertwined with the government. It's much more independent. Uh, there is a lot more analysis, a lot more thinking, uh, not just regurgitating of sensational facts as we see here when we listen, and I do this with great discomfort when I look at Fox News, when I look at some of the other mainstream media in America. I fear for the American people because I think they have no chance to get the information base that they need to take a responsible decision. Hans von Sponek, I want to thank you very much for being with us. Former uh, humanitarian coordinator of the Isle for Food program in Iraq, uh, resigned in, 19, in the year 2000, protesting the UN-US sanctions. Thanks for thank being you. with us. After this musical interlude, we'll be joined by Father Michael Lapsley of South Africa. In my dreams last night, it smelled fresh Like a river running Filled my belly with hot-baked bread Kissed my skin like an orange sunset Tired of being a bird in a cage Want my song to be about colors Used to want to be a painter Slabs of canvas, green and yellow There is no food on the table again Only rocks and flowers Holes in the ceiling let in a different kind of rain And I wonder Will I ever Wake up Again Mama Mama How am I gonna find home I painted peace Samsara here on Democracy Now! The War and Peace Report I'm Amy Goodman Investment banking giant Goldman Sachs has told South Africa its economy must grow at almost twice its recent rate if it is to make a dent in its massive unemployment rate. But Goldman Sachs also said the government is moving in the right direction by adopting neoliberal trade measures and targeting inflation. Interestingly, Goldman Sachs' report comes just a day after a new survey by the University of the Western Cape concluded that blacks in South Africa are getting poorer while whites are getting richer. The study found incomes in South African black households fell nearly 20 percent between 95 and 2000, while white household incomes rose by 15 percent. Last year, two out of three black households in Cape Town townships did not have enough food to eat. Meanwhile, South African President Thabo Mbeki recently announced his government will pay $4,000 each to the families of victims of apartheid. The reparation settlement will cost the South African government a total of $85 million. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission had requested nearly four times that amount. Mbeki rejected a recommendation from the chair of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, to impose a wealth tax on multinational companies and individuals who thrive during white minority rule. Uh, 
The South African government also decided not to back a series of lawsuits against multinationals such as Anglo-American and De Beers filed in U.S. courts and on behalf of apartheid victim groups. We're joined right now by a well-known anti-apartheid activist. He is a priest. He's Father Michael Lapsley. In 1990, three months after the release of Nelson Mandela, the ruling National Party government sent Father Lapsley a parcel containing two magazines. One of those magazines contained a bomb. When Father Lapsley opened it, the explosion brought down the ceilings in the house, blew a hole in the floors, shattered the windows. It blew off Father Lapsley's hands, destroyed an eye, and burned him severely. Michael Lapsley joined the African National Congress in the mid-1970s after being deported from South Africa for his activism. He served for many years as the ANC's chaplain in exile, struggling with the tension between his commitment to pacifism and his commitment to resistance against apartheid. Today, Michael Lapsley is the director of the Institute for Healing of Memories. Father Lapsley founded the Institute in 1998 as a sort of parallel process to the government's Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and he has just come to the United States and joins us now. Welcome to Democracy Now! Thank you, Amy. Good to be here and good to see that Democracy Now! continues to flourish in this very difficult moment in world history. Well, um, it is uh, wonderful to have you here and to know that you're now broadcasting today as you um, sit in our firehouse studios in the garret of this 100-year-old firehouse. Um, you're broadcasting on 140 stations, uh, public access TV, Pacifica radio stations, NPR affiliate stations, community radio stations around the country, as well as in Canada and Italy. Your very existence is a sign of hope. Uh, in a very dark period uh, in world history. Well, um, why don't we start, um, as we do each time when you come into the studio, um, where you tell us what happened to you and the journey you took, uh, how you've come to the point to running this institute for the healing of memories, and then your reaction to the reparations deal that the South African government has struck. The great thing about keeping on coming on Democracy Now!, whenever I come back to the United States, I meet people who said, I once heard you on Democracy Now! Um, to be very brief, I received a, uh, a letter bomb from the, the clerk government in April of 1990, uh, hidden inside the pages of two religious magazines. I suppose it was the ultimate act of cynicism of a regime that claimed to be Christian, that they would use religious magazines to kill a priest. But because I'd been part of the struggle for many years, traveling around the world, when I was bombed, I received messages, prayer, love, support, encouragement around the world. And my story was acknowledged, reverenced, recognized uh, by so many people. I was enabled to travel a journey from being a victim to being a survivor to being a victor. Often people have had terrible things done to them. Um, they, if they survive, they still remain prisoners inside themselves. But I was able to take that next step to be a victor, to become a participant in helping shape and create the world. When I returned to South Africa, I discovered a nation, yes, we had survived, but we had been damaged in our humanity by the journey that we had traveled. Uh, and I discovered that for many, many South Africans, perhaps for millions, their stories had not been acknowledged, reverenced, recognized in the way that mine had been. So in my work, I have sought to return the compliment 
to walk beside others uh, who have suffered terribly under apartheid. So they too would be able to choose to travel away from victimhood to becoming victors. And that eventually led me to, led me to bec uh, start an institute for healing of memories as a parallel process to the Truth Commission, to give anyone who wished to space be able to deal with how the past of our country has affected them psychologically, emotionally, spiritually. But also, more recently, I've also been chairing um, a, a non-governmental organization working group on reparations. And so we have been continuously pressuring the state to act decisively and generously in responding to the recommendations of the Truth Commission for final reparations. Um, the, the, the policy was first announced in 98, and only in the last month has the government finally said, yes, there will be final reparations. We welcome the decision. We welcome the acceptance by the government that it will include individual reparations to the something like 18,800 people who are defined as victims in terms of the legislation. However, extremely disappointing was that they are only going to give less than a third of what the Truth Commission recommended. Uh, and one has to remember that uh, where people gained amnesty, uh, they could no longer be civilly or criminally prosecuted. So relatives of victims and survivors have had their access to retributive justice removed. But if there's reparations, there's a form of restorative justice. Uh, so it's good that they've done what they've done, and it's limited form, but very disappointing that they were not as generous um, as we needed to be as a country. So in a sense, you now have a group of people who are deeply disappointed, and that is a kind of um, uh, poison, if you like, in the society of, of, of a group of people who suffered the most under apartheid. And I'm one of those victims, but I have a job. But the vast number of people who are in that category are among the poorest of the poor in South Africa. And it's a question of survival for them, for children to go to school, even for health care and other kinds of facilities. Father Michael Lapsley, you testified before the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Where does your case stand at this point? Well, in my case, there is still some unfinished business in that I don't know who actually was responsible. I asked the Truth Commission to find the chain of command, um, but they, were ne they, they got close to it at one stage. But at this stage, we don't actually know. So I, perhaps like all survivors, would like to know who did it, why they did it, but at the same time, I don't, my life is not controlled by that. I would sooner live a life than spend my time pursuing those who did it. But perhaps if I was to meet those who did it, um, if they um, feel damaged by what they participated in, I would be very happy to offer forgiveness um, to, to such people. But for the moment, I'm concentrating on being part of healing of memories uh, in South Africa and around the world. What makes you think, or do you think, that de Klerk directly knew? Uh, very, very simply. In fact, it was um, Van Zell Slabert, who was the leader of the white opposition um, at the time de Klerk was, was president. He told me that he had gone to de Klerk and said, there are death squads that are part of the machinery of the state. Uh, and de Klerk, as head of state, declined to dismantle those death squads, which is why I said that he was politically and morally responsible. De Klerk himself um, says he's sorry about some of the things that happened under apartheid, but he, ca 
he, he says, I take no responsibility for death, torture, and destruction. And that's, I suppose, part of his, um, that he's, mo in a sense, morally a very small human being, tragically. And in a sense, he's helped much of the white community in South Africa remain in denial about apartheid. He did not apply to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, so he did not get amnesty. Uh, no, he didn't, uh, indeed. Does that mean he could still be tried? I think uh, it's, still, it's still conceivable that, that that could happen, although it's clear that there's no great stomach in South Africa um, to go down that route. I think the energy um, is much more for reconstructing our country, and that's where we want to put um, our energy. But however, those who decline to seek amnesty, um, they can be civilly and criminally prosecuted, and families would be, it would be perfectly understandable for any relatives of victims and survivors to go down that route and in a sense almost encouraged to when we've seen a lack of generosity by the state in responding to the Truth Commission recommendations and, and also sadly letting big business off the hook. Well, what about that? What about big business right now? Um, you have uh, Anglo-American, you have De Beers, these corporations, even the tax um, that was recommended by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission not being picked up on by the government. Well, the conclusion we came to as, a, as an NGO working group on reparations was precisely that um, big business had much more successfully lobbied government than we were able to, or that victims and survivor groups um, were able to. And clearly, um, it was precisely the system of apartheid that enabled super exploitation, that enabled massive pro profits to take place. And we uh, still need to see um, big business being brought to account um, for its role uh, during the apartheid era. We're talking to Father Michael Lapsley. Uh, he was a victim of an apartheid-era um, assassination attempt, now runs the Institute for Healing of Memories. Um, you have just come from California, is that right? Yes. Um, I was in California wearing another hat. I'm the president of the Friends of Cuba Society in South Africa. And I had a deep privilege in that I met one of the Cuban five, um, Gerardo Hernandez, um, who's one of the five Cuban patriots. He's actually serving two life sentences in Lompoc prison. Um, the irony is that he should have been given a Congressional Medal um, because what he and, the he and his colleagues did was infiltrate the ultra-right in Miami who had been planning acts of terrorism from the soil of the United States against another sovereign country. The information was given to the Cuban government who presented it to the FBI and instead of saying, well done, at least you are participating in the war against terrorism, um, they are the ones who, are in fact, are serving long sentences. Uh, but he's a very remarkable human being, and I think that eventually they'll have, they'll have to release him and others because of the way he's conducting himself. He's turning that prison into a Cuban solidarity organization. Um, but very movingly, he told me of his own participation as well uh, in the struggle against apartheid as, as part of internationalist forces. And he said he has on his wall um, a photograph of um, President Fidel Castro and former President Nelson Mandela. And he said, um, perhaps I could send you that picture because I'm not sure if I'm victimized again, if I will lose that picture. And, and many people know that uh, in the uh, darkness of the invasion of Iraq, 
these five were put, had their clothes taken off them and were put in solitary confinement um, as pure victimization. And I think it's also symbolic of, uh, or symptomatic rather, of the crisis between Cuba and the United States and, and the way that the axis of evil emanating from Washington is in fact planning further attacks against other sovereign states. And clearly they have Cuba within its sights. Um, and the, there's uh, a sense in which the United States is trying to provoke um, a crisis with Cuba as a pretext for invasion. And I think millions of Americans who know that in fact Cuba is not a threat to world peace, the real threat to world peace uh, lies in Washington. Uh, and more and more citizens of the United States need to stand up and say no to any possibility of an invasion of Cuba, but rather to call for the normalization of relations with Cuba. And I think what's encouraging is more and more citizens in the United States are going to Cuba in spite of the policy of the United States and seeing that Cuba in fact has its contradictions, but how However, has achieved incredible things uh, in the relation of health care, education, uh, internationalism. Uh, there are many things one can point to. And, and one has to ask, why is Cuba a threat to the United States? Why is the United States pathological about Cuba? Isn't it simply because Cuba has organized its society in the interests of the poor rather than in the interests of the rich and the way the U.S. has? Hmm. Um, I wanted to ask about some of those contradictions. Uh, actually, first, as we speak, the U.S. has just expelled 14 Cuban diplomats. Washington has issued no formal accusations, but the State Department, according to reports, accusing the diplomats of spying. Seven of the diplomats worked at the United Nations. Seven um, worked at the Cuban intersection in Washington. Um, and that just happened. Um, tensions have been increasing since March when Cuba jailed 75 dissidents and executed three men who tried to hijack a ferry bound for the United States. What are your uh, thoughts on uh, both the arrests and the, the use of the death penalty? Well, I just want to say first thing on the death penalty. I'm totally opposed to the death penalty everywhere. Um, I must say, I want to vomit when I hear the United States government speaking ag against the use of the death penalty, as um, the United States is the country above all others that represents an option for death. So there's a total of cynical um, kind of response. But I think it's a, it's a function of just how serious the crisis is. Um, and, and in the United States media, it's said that dissidents were jailed because of their ideas. But in fact, after due process, the Cubans presented the evidence of, of the breaking of Cuban law um, organized from the U.S. interest section. And really, it's been ever since James Kaysen has been the head of the U.S. interest section in Havana that um, attempts to organize against the government of Cuba have been fomented, paid for, supplied by the U.S. interest section. So the U.S. interest section has been acting contrary to any diplomatic norms. And of course, there were also seven hijackings that took place over a period of four months. But not only that, the United States then, in the courts of Miami, released four of these hijackers to walk the streets. Uh, so you have a sense in which the U.S. has been encouraging illegal 
immigration out of Cuba, and yet there's an immigration agreement that allows for 20,000 Cubans every year lawfully to come to the United States. But so far, up until April, only 500 had been allowed. So you have a legal process being discouraged and an illegal process encouraged, because clearly what the U.S. wants is to have a huge number of Cubans leaving illegally and present an opportunity uh, to invade. And so it's in that context we have to see is just how seriously the Cubans regard the present situation. Do you think Fidel Castro is cracking down because he sees himself as, uh, it's hard to say future targets since he has been a target for um, so many decades Six of the United 600 States? 600 assassination attempts emanating from the United States, more than 600. But this recent crackdown in Cuba that um, I think has distressed many in the progressive community. I think we need to analyze very carefully. And I think some people within the progressive uh, community. And in Cuba. And in Cuba have been confused by what has happened and have been co-opted by other forces um, around the world. And I think this is where, I mean, in a sense, it's a contrast. The United States, I mean, Cuba went through a due process of law to sentence people according to U.S., according to Cuban law, as opposed to Guantanamo Bay where you have a very large number of people, including children, um, who are outside any kind of judicial process. So I think there is a, a sharp contrast there. And the Cubans have presented the evidence um, of the role the U.S. interest section made. And so I think we, and the tragedy is that most uh, TV and radio stations in the United States are not presenting the evidence, are not presenting the Cuban side of the picture, but rather they are presenting a, a view through the lenses of the James Casons, of the CIA, of Washington, of what actually is happening uh, in Cuba. Father Michael Lapsley, we only have a minute. Why are you here in the United States? for this trip? I came here for a fascinating conference um, that took place in Los Angeles where there were Muslim, Jewish and Christian looking at the religious sources of social transformation. Um, and you see there is a kind of convergence of interest with the right-wing religious people in the U.S. Um, use, using religion to support vi state violence. Um, not that dissimilar from al-Qaeda using Islam, um, abusing Islam for the purposes of violence. But we were trying to look at the ways in which the three great Abrahamic faiths, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, their core values are about peace, about reconciliation, about justice and hope. And just as there can be no future for humanity, which is not an interfaith future, so there can be no future for the world which, except one which is multilateral. And so I think one hopes that more and more citizens of this country will demand that its government return to a multilateral world and away from unilateralism, which has become a threat to world peace. Well, I want to thank you very much for being with us, Father Michael Lapsley, here in our Firehouse studio. And that does it for today's program. If you'd like to get contact information, you can go to our newly designed website. We have just launched it, democracynow.org. Very special thanks to our senior producer, Chris Abrams, who spearheaded the move, Eric Goldhagen and Jesse Hirsch of Open Flows and StassMedia.com. Democracy Now! is produced by Chris Abrams, Mike Burke, Angie Karen, Sharif Abdul-Kudus, Anna Noguera, Elizabeth Press. 
Press with help from Noah Reibel and Vilkat Suris. Mike DeFilippo is our engineer with help from Rich Kim. You can get a copy of today's show by calling 1-800-881-2359. 1-800-881-2359. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks for being with us. From Pacifica Radio, this is Democracy Now! Well, going back to the acts of evil, uh, North Korea is the most dangerous and the ugliest of the three members, uh, but it's the lowest on the list of targets. Uh, so why is that so? Well, to be a target, a country has to meet uh, several conditions. First of all, it has to be defenseless, uh, and secondly, it has to be important and Iraq qualified on both counts. Today, Noam Chomsky on the history of U.S.-Korea relations and Operation Strangelove. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, the War and Peace Report. President Bush is coming under criticism for focusing on Saddam Hussein and Iraq instead of the threat of al-Qaeda following Monday's attack, the car bomb blast in Saudi Arabia that killed at least 34 people, including seven Americans. Almost 200 are believed to be wounded. Senator Bob Graham, the Florida Democrat, said yesterday, quote, the war on Iraq was a distraction. It took us off the war on terror, which we were on a path to win, but we have now let it slip away from us. Graham is the former chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee. He's running for president and said the U.S. failed in analyzing intelligence and averting both the attacks on September 11th as well as Monday's bombing in Saudi Arabia. The bombings are seen as the largest attack on U.S. interests since September 11th. Yesterday, President Bush vowed a swift response, declaring, quote, the United States will find the killers and they will learn the meaning of American justice. He said, anytime anybody attacks our homeland or our fellow citizens, we will be on the hunt. We will bring them to justice. Just ask the Taliban. The State Department has ordered all non-essential diplomatic personnel and their families to leave Saudi Arabia. And officials in the State Department, the FBI and CIA have been dispatched to Saudi Arabia to investigate the bombing. U.S. and Saudi officials said they believe al-Qaeda carried out the attack. Saudi and U.S. officials had warnings that an attack was imminent. Last week, at least 19 al-Qaeda suspects who were under surveillance shot their way out of a police trap. That was eight days ago. 
The seven Americans known to have been killed were employees of a local subsidiary of Vanell Corporation that was contracted to train Saudi Arabian National Guard. The Times of London reports some believe Vanell, which is owned by Northrop Grumman, to be a front group for the CIA. In related news, the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom is criticizing the State Department for failing to designate Saudi Arabia as one of the world's most egregious violators of human rights and as exporter of extremist Islam. The criticism came in the commission's annual report, which was issued yesterday. In Iraq, U.S. soldiers are going to be given the authority to shoot looters on site. This according to the New York Times. The new American administrator, Paul Bremer, announced the changes at a meeting with senior staffers in Iraq yesterday. It's unclear how the occupation forces will inform Iraqis of the new rules of engagement. One of the officials who attended the meeting told the New York Times occupation forces are, quote, going to start shooting a few looters so that the word gets around. Meanwhile, the Washington Post is reporting that U.S. authorities have rejected a bid by ethnic Kurds for a stake in the state oil giants of northern Iraq. The Post reports U.S. focus on oil production first and new leadership later has upset Kurdish leaders. Thousands of bodies have been found in a mass grave near Hilla in central Iraq. Distraught Iraqis are digging and sifting through the site with their bare hands, desperately searching for remains of their loved ones. The victims are believed to have been killed in 1991 during the Shia uprising that was violently crushed after the first Gulf War. The U.S. failed to support the Shia uprising and allowed the Iraqi army to use helicopters to crush the rebellion. An Iraqi who was searching the remains for his brother told the New York Times, quote, America helped Saddam do this. America could have finished Saddam back then. Look at the results. Human rights groups are calling on U.S. and British forces to do more to protect the site and preserve crucial evidence of a mass killing. And this just in, at least 20 people have been killed and several more wounded in another attack in Chechnya. Interfax News Agency quoted an official in the pro-Moscow administration as saying the attack had been carried out by a female suicide bomber at a religious festival in the village of Ilishkan Yurt. This comes just two days after a suicide bombing on Monday in which 54 people died and government compound was destroyed. This news from Afghanistan. Suspected Taliban sympathizers shot and wounded two Norwegian peacekeepers yesterday in a daytime ambush north of the Afghan capital of Kabul. The U.S. has expelled 14 diplomats. Washington has issued no formal accusations, but the BBC and the AFP are reporting State Department officials have accused the diplomats of spying. Israeli forces killed three Palestinians, wounded 30 others after firing a missile into a crowd in the Yunis refugee camp in Gaza. Nearby, tanks and bulldozers destroyed Palestinian homes. Later that night, Palestinian rescue workers said Israeli soldiers opened fire on a Palestinian police post, killing three and wounding two. A massive public sector strike in France has brought the country to a standstill. Planes, trains, buses and subways were shut down. The strikers are protesting a proposed reform of France's pension system. 
The Republican-controlled House will allow the federal ban on Uzis and other semi-automatic weapons to expire. The announcement by House Leader Tom DeLay is a major victory for the NRA and the gun lobby. The weapons were banned a decade ago by then-President Clinton. And finally, nearly 40 years after its release, Stanley Kubrick's classic Cold War satire, Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, is getting a second life. Thanks in part to President Bush and his policies of unilateralism and preemptive strikes. In a form of protest against the Bush administration, the film will be screened tonight in over 40 cities from New York to Puerto Rico to Oakland, California, in an action dubbed Operation Strangelove. We're joined right now by Jen Nessel in our Firehouse Studios. She is the organizer of Operation Strangelove, the campaign to hold these screenings around the country. Welcome to Democracy Now! Thank you. Uh, can you talk about um, this uh, project that is taking place today? Today? Well, Operation Strangelove is a national day of satire and dissent. And we're protesting cowboy diplomacy and, as you said, unilateral preemptive strikes. And wars fought for one reason and one reason only, which is precious fluids. Uh, we're actually now up to 70 cities. And these are screenings that are happening in people's living rooms, in meeting rooms and theaters uh, across the country, in Missoula, Montana, and Charlotte, North Carolina. And it's a nice kind of grassroots action where people can do something where they are. I helped on the Lysistrata project in early March, where it was a much larger scale. We ended up with more than 1,000 screenings in 59 countries. But, um, it it's, gives people an opportunity to participate in a nice way. Can you introduce this clip? Yes. Um, we have the base commander um, at the Strategic Air Force Command, who is General, no, sorry, Colonel Jack D. Ripper. And he has initiated a sequence that's going to end in nuclear destruction of the world. And now he's going to tell us about it. This is Dr. Strange, love. Mandrake. Do you recall what Clemenceau once said about war? Uh, no, I don't think I do, sir. No. He said war was too important to be left to the generals. When he said that, 50 years ago, he might have been right. But today, war is too important to be left to politicians. They have neither the time, the training, or the inclination for strategic thought. I can no longer sit back and allow communist infiltration, communist indoctrination, communist subversion, and the international communist conspiracy to sap and impurify all of our precious bodily fluids. An excerpt of Dr. Strangelove that will be aired around the country today. Jen Nessel, if people want to find out more about the project, where can they go on the web or call? Well, two things. One, they can come to the New York City screening at United Artists Battery Park tonight at 7 o'clock, where we'll have a discussion afterwards with Janine Garofalo and Art Spiegelman and lots of wonderful people. And they can go to our website, which is 
operationstrangelove.org to find out how to do it themselves, to get neat t-shirts and do whatever they want. Well, this is happening around the country today, folks. Jen Nessel of Operation Strangelove. And we'll report back tomorrow on, um, on this national phenomenon. As we turn now to... Dr. Noam Chomsky, professor of linguistics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, came to New York last night to speak at a forum at the State University of New York at Stony Brook. He discusses U.S.-Korea foreign relations. Well, let me uh, begin with the most immediate uh, crisis right now in U.S.-Asia relations and a very uh, dangerous one, uh, namely with regard to North Korea. That's the one uh, non-Muslim member of the famous axis of evil. Uh, the members are the prime potential targets of attack under the national uh, security uh, strategy that was announced last September. As you'll recall, the uh, doctrine declares in effect that the United States uh, intends to rule the world by force and uh, will act uh, forcefully if it chooses uh, to eliminate any challenge to that uh, domination. The uh, official version defined challenge in terms of possession of weapons of mass destruction, the uh, pretext for the uh, invasion of Iraq. Uh, it's become a little difficult to sustain and the doctrine has accordingly been modified modified. Uh, now challenge is defined in terms of what's called ability and intention to develop weapons of mass destruction. That suffices for attack. Well, uh, virtually everyone has the ability, uh, including Stony Brook High, assuming it has a chemistry and biology lab. Uh, so that uh, reduces to intention. Uh, and the implication is that the United States uh, 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 takes, accepts the right, arrogates to itself the right to attack uh, anyone it chooses. Well, these doctrines are not completely new. They considerably extend policies that go all the way back to World War II. Uh, the underlying principle was uh, expressed uh, lucidly by Henry Kissinger in an important speech uh, just 30 years ago, 1973, 1973 was the year of Europe, and Kissinger gave an important address called the Year of Europe Address, uh, in which he uh, warned Europeans not to strike an independent course in world affairs. He instructed them that they and others have regional responsibilities within the overall framework of order that uh, is maintained by the United States, global order. Uh, and it's now... Uh, declaring far more expansive ambitions. Well, going back to the axis of evil, uh, North Korea is the most dangerous and the ugliest of the three members, uh, but it's the lowest on the list of targets. Uh, so why is that so? Well, to be a target, a country has to meet uh, several conditions. First of all, it has to be defenseless, uh, and secondly, it has to be important and Iraq qualified on both counts. Uh, North Korea, however, uh, fails the first condition. It has a deterrent, uh, massed artillery aimed at Seoul uh, and at U.S. forces in the south. Uh, hence, it cannot be 
attacked with complete impunity. Uh, that will remain a problem unless the Pentagon figures out the way to uh, eliminate the deterrent uh, instantly with precision-guided weapons, maybe tactical nukes. Actually, the problem is being relieved in a way which South Korea regards as rather ominous. Uh, the U.S. troops are being withdrawn uh, to south of Seoul, or so the plans are, which uh, could be uh, under interpreted in a rather uh, ugly way, which I won't go into. Uh, what about the second criterion, uh, importance? Well, North Korea itself is of no importance. It's one of the poorest countries in the world. It's uh, barely surviving. It has no resources to speak of. Uh, nevertheless, it happens to be highly important. Hence, it's a potential target uh, if it can be rendered defenseless. And it's important to understand why, that's a, why it's important. That's a central part of evolving U.S.-Asia relations now. Uh, the background reasons are uh, uh, actually well described in a recent uh, study by, of Northeast Asia by a uh, prestigious uh, task force. It's chaired by uh, Zella Harrison, who's one of the leading specialists on the region. I'll quote you a couple of comments. Uh, Northeast Asia, the task force writes, is now the epicenter of international commerce and technical innovation. Collectively, Japan, South Korea, China, Taiwan, and Hong Kong have constituted the fastest growing economic region in the world for much of the past two decades, and today account for nearly a third of global GDP, uh, far ahead of the United States. Approximately half of global foreign exchange reserves are held by Northeast Asian countries. Uh, they also account for nearly half of global inbound foreign direct investment and they're also becoming an increasing source of outbound foreign direct investment in uh, Asia and uh, also to Europe and North America. Uh, Russia and China, part of the system, are both rich in natural resources. Uh, the economic unification and stability of the two Koreas would be greatly enhanced by the development of uh, uh, gas pipelines that are now projected through North Korea from uh, 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 eastern Siberia uh, and from Sakhalin uh, through the north to the south. Uh, similarly, the projected extension of the Trans-Siberian Railroad through North Korea to the south would transform the peninsula and contribute uh, further to the uh, economic cooperation between Korea and its neighbors. Well, that's the background. North Korea is right in the middle of it. The uh, a task force uh, ad, uh, advises the United States to follow the lead of neighboring countries and to seek to negotiate North Korea's step-by-step uh, -step peaceful integration into the region. Uh, but from Washington's point of view, that poses serious problems, conflicts with the Kissinger Doctrine and the much more expansive uh, national security strategy. Uh, uh, and Kissinger was by no means the first. Uh, Northeast uh, uh, Asia is an integrated region, has rich resources, uh, rapidly developing industrial centers that need the resources, uh, half the world's financial reserves, and so on. It could go off on an independent course, uh, just as continental Europe could with its German-French industrial base. 
uh, part of the reason for the intense hostility to Germany and France in recent months, and in fact beyond. Uh, well, that raises the problem that Kissinger outlined, and it's been a significant problem since the, uh, uh, the United States gained a position of global dominance after World War II. Uh, in this case, the problem of potential independence of the Northeast Asian region is an impediment to the peaceful diplomatic settlement of the Korean crisis, North Korean crisis, that appears to be the goal of uh, all the countries in the region, including North Korea. Uh, well, there may be some other impediments. Uh, North Korea may have some other memories in mind. Uh, here we have to recall a characteristic difference between the culture of conquerors and victims. Uh, quite typically, the powerful send history to the mem memory hole or the, else they sanitize it for their benefit. Uh, the weak don't uh, have that uh, privilege and they tend to remember history. So it's unlikely, for example, that North Koreans uh, have forgotten what the U.S. Air Force called an object lesson in air power to all the communists in the world and especially to the communists in North Korea. Now, that lesson, I'm quoting from a, an enthusiastic report in an official Air Force history, uh, that lesson was uh, delivered a month before the armistice 50 years ago uh, there were no targets left in the flattened country, so U.S. bombers were sent to destroy irrigation dams. Quoting again, uh, irrigation dams that furnished 75% of the controlled rice supply for North Korea's rice production. The Westerner can little conceive the awesome meaning which the loss of this staple commodity has for the Asian, starvation and slow death, hence the show of rage the flare of violent tempers and the avowed threat of reprisal uh, from the Asians uh, reacting um, to this reenactment of the kind of crimes that led to death sentences at Nuremberg. Uh, one may reasonably wonder whether uh, such memories are in the background as their uh, desperate leadership plays a kind of nuclear chicken. Professor Noam Chomsky speaking at Stony Brook University in New York last night. We're going to come back to his speech in just a minute. Yeah. 
You are listening to Democracy Now!, the War and Peace Report, as we continue with Professor Noam Chomsky, author of many books, professor of linguistics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, among his latest books, Power and Terror, and another book, Pirates and Emperors, Old and New International Terrorism in the Real World. In this speech, he addresses the issue of U.S.-Korean relations. Well, South Koreans have plenty of memories, too. Uh, for example, on Jeju Island, which was the scene of the massacre of uh, maybe 40,000 people in 1948 by forces under the control of the U.S. military. So a large component of the roughly 100,000 killed by uh, the U.S. client regime, U.S. military-backed regime uh, in South Korea. That's before what we call the Korean War. Uh, perhaps South Koreans also uh, recall more recently uh, Washington's role 15 years ago when the Reagan-Bush administration uh, continued to give strong support to the brutal dictatorships and tried to prevent the democratization of South Korea, uh, which has been a remarkable achievement, as remarkable as its economic development and a kind of model for the world. Uh, well, there could be other memories. Uh, which have a lot to do with the current situation. For example, memories from 1951. 1951 was the year of the San Francisco Peace Treaty, which formally ended the war on, in Asia. It's not known very well here, as far as I'm aware. At least I don't ever come across it. Uh, the war in Asia, of course, was uh, primarily a war fought by Japan against uh, countries of Asia. Later, it became a uh, US-led Western war with Japan uh, after Pearl Harbor. And at the San Francisco Treaty, uh, 1951 brought the war to an end. Well, who took part? Uh, from Asia, uh, three French colonies in Indochina took part. Uh, apart from them, the only Asian countries that supported the peace treaty were Pakistan and Ceylon, both of them recent uh, British colonies that were remote from the Asian wars. Uh, India refused to attend because of the terms of the treaty, in particular the U.S. insistence on retaining Okinawa as a military base, as it still does, over strong protests from Okinawans, uh, which are ignored and largely unknown in the United States. Uh, Truman uh, was outraged by India's disobedience, its refusal to attend or support the treaty, uh, just as his heirs are outraged today by the decision of uh, the Turkish government to ab abide by the wishes of 95% of the population instead of following orders from Washington. It's a crime for which they were berated uh, last week by Paul Wolfowitz, uh, who's depicted as the uh, leader of the crusade to democratize the Middle East, uh, apparently without irony. Uh, Truman uh, wrote uh, no less elegantly than Wolfowitz that India must have consulted Uncle Joe and Mousy Dung. Uh, notice that the white man got a name, uh, not just a vulgar outburst. Uh, partly that may be ordinary racism, or perhaps it was because uh, Truman genuinely admired uh, Old Joe, as he called him. Uh, Old Joe, Truman said in 1948, was a decent and honest man. Uh, Old Joe reminded him of the Missouri boss Tom Pendergrast, who started him off on his career. Uh, Mousy Dung, on the other hand, was a yellow devil. 
Uh, well, these distinctions just extend wartime propaganda. Uh, anyone my age can recall that uh, the Nazis may have been bad guys, uh, but they merited a certain respect. Uh, they were, after all, uh, white, uh, blue-eyed, uh, blonde, at least in the stereotype. Uh, Japanese, however, were quite different. They were just vermin to be crushed, that is, once they became enemies. Although before that, uh, the United States was quite tolerant of their depredations in Asia, as long as uh, U.S. business interests were protected. Actually, that went on up till days before Pearl Harbor. Uh, and the same factors uh, distinguish uh, Uncle Joe from uh, Mao Zedong. Well, uh, Korea was not even invited to the uh, San Francisco Peace Conference, uh, nor Taiwan, which uh, was regarded as China then by the United States. Korea, Taiwan, and China were the primary victims of Japanese fascism uh, and its predecessors. Uh, quoting a Japanese scholar, Japan's racist wartime ideology, which had propelled atrocities against Asian soldiers and civilians alike, escaped uh, scrutiny and condemnation under the U.S. military occupation uh, and also the peace treaty. Koreans and Chinese received no reparations from Japan, uh, and Secretary of State Dulles personally intervened to ensure that there would be no reparations for Filipinos. Uh, he condemned the Filipinos for what he called their emotional prejudices, uh, which kept them from comprehending that they would have no relief uh, for the uh, torture that uh, they endured. Uh, there were Japanese reparations namely to the United States and to other Western colonial powers. Uh, and uh, reimbursement from Japan uh, to the United States for the cost of the occupation. Uh, Japan's liabilities were restricted to the period beginning on December 7, 1941, although, of course, Japan was responsible for far more severe uh, atrocities and aggression before that. However, before that, it was against Asians so there was no liability under the terms of the occupation and the peace treaty. For its Asian victims, uh, Japan was to pay compensation, namely uh, export of Japanese manufactured products using South Asian resources. Uh, that was a central part of the reconstruction of the Asian system within the U.S. <coughs> global system after the Second World War. Uh, these were arrangements <coughs> Pass me that bottle of water there. Oh, is there one here? Ah, thanks. Yeah, sorry. I'm talking so much in the last four weeks at Stony Brook. <laughs> Must be a polluted atmosphere. <laughs> um, so Japan was to export, the compensation was that Japan would export uh, uh, manufactured products uh, to uh, using Southeast Asian resources. Uh, this was a, a central part of the arrangement that restored to Japan, uh, in effect, the uh, new order in Asia that it had uh, attempted to gain by conquest, and uh, now is restored to it, but under U.S. domination, so it was okay. Uh, this was, uh, what, uh, this was uh, Japan's empire toward the south, as it was described by the uh, head of the State Department planning staff, uh, George Kennan, uh, who helped design these policies. 
Uh, some Asian victims of Japanese fascism, uh, forced laborers, did bring suit uh, in California against Japanese corporations with subsidiaries in the United States, uh, corporations that were the legal successors of those responsible for the crimes. Uh, on the eve of the 50th anniversary of the peace treaty, their suit was dismissed by a California judge on grounds that their claims were barred uh, by the treaty. The State Department had filed a brief uh, in support of the accused Japanese corporations, and relying on the brief, the judge ruled that, I'm quoting him, the San Francisco Peace Treaty had served to sustain U.S. security interests in Asia and to support peace and stability in the region. The uh, Asia historian John Price, one of the very few to have written about these things, uh, described this judgment as one of the more abysmal moments of denial, uh, pointing out that at least 10 million Asians had been killed in wars uh, while Asia was uh, an oasis of peace and stability. Uh, elite opinion concerning these wars ranges, as it usually does, uh, over a spectrum from doves to hawks. So just keeping to the Indochina wars and uh, to recent ex-presidents, uh, Carter and Clinton were doves. Uh, Bush number one was a moderate and Reagan was a hawk. Uh, Reagan uh, lauded the enterprise as a noble cause for which the victims of the aggression were completely to blame along with Russia and China. Uh, Bush number one, uh, the moderate, uh, informed the Vietnamese that although uh, we could never forgive them for the crimes they committed against us, uh, we would nevertheless be gracious and will not seek retribution for the past, he said, uh, as long as they dedicate themselves with sufficient zeal to the sole moral issue that remains after U.S. aggression that uh, led to the death of maybe four to five million people and the destruction of three countries. The sole moral issue, of course, is the fate of uh, American MIAs. Uh, Carter, on the other hand, at the other extreme, the Dove, uh, informed the press that we owe the Vietnamese no debt because the destruction was mutual, his words, perfectly obvious from a walk through Stony Brook and Quang Nai province. Uh, Clinton was still more forthcoming. True, he did force Vietnam to assume the debt uh, owed to Washington by the client regime that Washington had established as the local base for its war against uh, the internal aggression of the South Vietnamese against America. That's uh, Adlai Stevenson's phrase. Uh, but uh, Clinton magnanimously forgave part of that debt. Uh, so there is a spectrum of opinion from doves to hawks. The uh, spectrum of elite intellectual opinion is barely wider, although it's interesting that the general population has been radically different for 35 years. Uh, since 1969, uh, a large majority has consistently held that the war was fundamentally wrong and immoral, not a mistake. It's a view that's almost never voiced in respectable circles, meaning everyone made it up for themselves. Uh, nevertheless, uh, the um, usual reconstruction of history has succeeded with the public uh, 
In the only study of the matter that I know, an academic study at the University of Massachusetts, the policy institute there, uh, it uh, asked people to estimate the number of Vietnamese deaths, and the median judgment was about 100,000. That's about 5% of the official U.S. figure, and a much smaller percentage, very likely, of the actual figure. As far as I'm aware, these shocking reports uh, received uh, no comment or discussion. The authors of the academic study suggest that we might think there was some problem in Germany if the median estimate of Holocaust deaths were 300,000. But uh, such judgments are never applied by the victorious and the powerful to themselves. And if they're ever mentioned, they elicit uh, outrage and quite impressive tantrums. Uh, well, going back to Clinton's magnanimous gesture, it was explicitly modeled on a 1908 program that returned to China a portion of the indemnity uh, that it had been forced to pay for rebelling against its foreign masters, that's the Boxer Rebellion, and their earlier precedents. Uh, Haiti's liberation from French rule in 1804 shocked civilized opinion, uh, which was concerned that the virus of liberation might spread from the first free country in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, for obvious reasons, the danger was particularly acute in the United States, which took the lead in isolating the criminal state. It relented only in 1862 when destinations were being sought for freed slaves. Uh, Liberia was recognized in the same year for the same reasons. Uh, in punishment for its crime of liberation, uh, Haiti was compelled by France in 1825 to pay France a huge indemnity, uh, which guaranteed French domination and had a catastrophic effect on the society that France had devastated during its war of liberation. Uh, this had been France's richest colony, the source of much of France's wealth, uh, but not enough. Haiti had to pay a huge indemnity for the crime of liberation. Uh, half a century before France's punishment of Haiti for its defiance of the norms of civilized behavior, uh, George Washington set forth on the conquest of the advanced Iroquois civilization in New York. Uh, his goal, in his words, was to extirpate them from the country. And so he wrote to Lafayette on July 4th, 1779 and also to expand American boundaries westward toward the Mississippi. Uh, conquest of Canada uh, was barred by British force, although there were a few attempts beaten back. Uh, the town destroyer, as Washington was known to the indigenous population, completed his mission successfully. The Iroquois were then politely informed uh, that they would have to provide compensation for their treacherous resistance to their liberators. Uh, another Clinton, then governor of New York, informed the defeated tribes, quote him, that considering our losses, the debts we have incurred, and our former friendship, it is reasonable that you make to us a cession of your lands, as will aid us in repairing and discharging the losses and debts we have incurred. Uh, having as little choice as uh, Haitians and Chinese and Vietnamese and many others, in the face of overwhelming force, the Iroquois ceded their territory, uh, only to discover that New York State proceeded at once 
to violate its solemn treaties, including this one, uh, and uh, to take the rest of the uh, territories through threats and deception and guile. Uh, a young American soldier later wrote home his words that I feel really guilty as I apply the torch to huts that were homes of content until we ravagers came spreading desolation everywhere, but perhaps in a good cause, he added. Our mission here is ostensibly to destroy, but may it not transpire that we pillagers are carelessly sowing the seeds of empire. So some good could come out of it. And uh, citizens of New York, and for that matter of Massachusetts, continue to benefit from the seeds that were sown. And I'm sure all of this is taught in every elementary school in New York, uh, just as it should be. Professor Noam Chomsky speaking last night at the State University of New York, Stony Brook in Long Island. We're going to come back to his speech in just a minute here on Democracy Now! Stay with us. Is it coming from within? A heartbeat I don't know A troubled soul knows no peace A darkened poisoned hole Of liberty Breaking the Silence, Lorena McKinnett here on Democracy Now!, the War and Peace Report. As we return to Noam Chomsky, professor of linguistics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, his book 911 has been number one on the New York Times bestseller list, was after 911 uh, for a very long time. He has come out with many books since, including Power and Terror. Today we continue with a speech that he gave at the State University of New York at Stony Brook as he continues on the issue of empire, war, and terror. Well, the fact of the matter is that the inheritors of the seeds of empire uh, that were sown in this way, not only in New York State, uh, know very little about any of this, uh, just as they know very little, virtually nothing, about their deeds in Asia. Uh, but it's well to remember that the founding fathers who were carrying all this out in the early stages, uh, they were very well aware what they, of what they were doing. Uh, not some, like President Monroe, preferred to believe that, uh, in his words, we become in reality their benefactors by expelling the natives from their homes. Uh, but others had a somewhat clearer vision. So Secretary of War Knox, first Secretary of War, uh, warned that a future historian may mark the causes of this destruction of the human race in sable colors. Uh, John Quincy Adams, who had quite a horrendous record himself, uh, became an outspoken critic of the policies toward the indigenous population uh, well after he left power, described these policies as among the most heinous sins of this nation, 
for which I believe God will one day bring it to judgment, and he hoped that his belated stand might somehow aid that hapless race of Native Americans, which we are exterminating with such merciless and perfidious cruelty. But his uh, recantation had no effect on the extermination, which continued with full ruthlessness. Uh, so little is known about any of this, or at least understood, that the conquerors even proudly name their instruments of destruction uh, after the victims of virtual genocide. Actually, I think the U.S. may be unique among conquerors in this respect. So I suppose that some eyebrows would be raised if uh, the Luftwaffe were to call its uh, lethal attack helicopters a Jew and Gypsy. Uh, although there's no problem here if they're called Black Hawk and Apache. Uh, in fact, few would even know what those names signify. So, for example, how many even know that uh, Black Hawk was the leader of the resistance to the conquerors uh, in the 1830s in the Midwest, and after uh, his capture and imprisonment for his crime of resistance, he was paraded in triumph through American cities by the War Department, which uh, had a more honest name in those days. And there's no need to relate what happened to his people. Well, uh, let's go back to the period of the European conquest of much of Asia. Uh, according to World Bank estimates, in 1820, the economic distance between the richest and the poorest countries of the world was about three to one. And that rose to 35 to one by 1950 uh, to 72 to one by 1992. Uh, in the mid 18th century, beginning of the conquest, there was apparently no difference uh, in economic level between the more economically advanced centers of Europe and Asia. In fact, in many respects, the Asian countries were, not only, were probably more advanced than England, so recent scholarship suggests. Uh, China and India were major industrial and commercial centers, main ones in the world. Uh, East Asia was far ahead of Europe in uh, public health, probably in sophistication of market systems. Uh, life expectancy in Japan was apparently higher than Europe. Uh, Europe was trying to catch up in the late 18th century in textiles, the beginning of the Industrial Revolution and other manufacturers. Uh, uh, other manufacturers. It was borrowing from India in ways that are now called piracy and are banned in the international trade agreements that have imposed by been imposed by the rich states uh, once they used those methods, crucially the United States, uh, to uh, achieve a level of development. It's now imposed on everyone else. Uh, nobody would have developed if the current World Trade Organization rules were in place. Uh, in the 1820s, uh, British engineers were studying Indian steelmaking techniques in order to help English steelmakers close the technological gap with India. It's a recent technical study in the United States. Uh, the future Duke of Wellington uh, equipped his troops with Indian artillery uh, for the uh, Napoleonic Wars uh, because they were better than British products. And he also uh, sought to acquire Indian ships for the same reason, uh, but that was barred by Parliament uh, to uh, protect uh, Britain's uh, infant uh, shipping industry. Uh, during the that's how all of British industry developed protection for and, and state power for England, 
liberal forced liberalization for India, uh, and that just generalizes around the world. Uh, during the railroad age, uh, India probably had a comparative advantage in locomotive production, but that was rendered uh, inoperative by the British imperial preference system. I remember that this was during the period of enthusiasm for free trade, and it's not an unusual example of the way the concept is applied in practice. Uh, among the countries with large rail networks, India was the only one that failed to industrialize during the railroad era, and it was also the only colony among them, unable to exercise sovereign rights. The uh, difference in industrial development between India and Japan is particularly striking. Quote an Indian economic historian, Daniel Thorner, it simply illustrates the difference in the direction and emphasis between a country running its own affairs and a dependency whose affairs were being managed by an external power. It's rather hard to overlook the fact that the countries that developed were those that retained their sovereignty, Western Europe and its offshoots, and Japan, which resisted colonization, and incidentally, Japan's colonies, uh, which it did develop. Japan was a cruel and brutal conqueror, but unlike the uh, Western imperial powers, it developed its colonies at roughly the same rate as Japan itself. Uh, it, in fact, they, that's what's now Taiwan and Korea, South Korea, all of Korea, uh, which then there was a lull during and after the Second World War, but then it picked up again. So its same pattern's been continuing. Uh, it wasn't until independence that uh, Indian development resumed the course that had been blocked by colonization. On the eve of independence in the mid-1940s, uh, life expectancy in India was about what it had been two centuries earlier. It's doubled since. That gives you a measure of the deaths, the, the murder caused by the colonization period. Uh, in the past half century of independence, there have been no major famines in India. Uh, in the last half of the preceding century, under British rule, some 30 million people died in famines, and they continued right until independence. Uh, China wasn't conquered until 150 years ago when Britain forced China to accept British exports. Uh, China had not been interested in doing so, and the reason was well understood by British agents in the region. The problem was that uh, Britain's products were not competitive with China's own manufacturers, so they couldn't sell them in the Chinese market. That was actually the problem that Britain had faced in India a century earlier, and there it was overcome by uh, forcing India to liberalize while Britain retained powerful state controls and protection, a pattern, again, that has been replicated for every currently developed country, dramatically the United States. Uh, China was finally brought into the civilized world about 150 years ago by the Second Opium War, uh, which Britain fought uh, in order to turn China into a market for British goods. They couldn't sell them anything else, but they could sell them opium when they forced them to accept it. Uh, incidentally, they also turned it into a nation of drug addicts. Uh, the rest of India was conquered at about the same time. That was largely motivated by the need to gain a monopoly of opium production, uh, which almost succeeded, but not quite, because Yankee traders were right behind, uh, along with a few others. This, again, was during the period of uh, enthusiasm about uh, free trade. Uh, Britain's narco-trafficking enterprise 
was quite awesome in scale. I mean, far and away the greatest in history. It, uh, subs its revenue subsidized the colonial regime in India. They sustained the East India Company in its day as the hub of uh, British commerce in the East. Uh, Narco-trafficking also enabled Britain to purchase U.S. cotton. Remember, cotton was kind of the counterpart of oil in the 19th century. And uh, the same revenues uh, financed a good part of the costs of the Royal Navy, uh, which protected the empire. One British governor general commented that the drug addicts in China helped make the extension of British rule in China possible. They also, we can add, made the British rule in uh, India possible, and in fact uh, were a fundamental factor in uh, the Industrial Revolution uh, in uh, uh, England, later elsewhere, and the foundations of modern capitalism. Uh, the opium trade was called the poison trade. Uh, it had one major competitor, uh, which a recent English China historian describes the major competitor was, in his words, what was jocosely known in mercantile circles as the pig trade. Uh, he's referring to the people, the pigs, to the conquerors. Uh, the Chinese government was unable to protect its citizens after British uh, Britain forced it open and basically conquered it. Uh, and therefore, unlucky Chinese could be kidnapped or shanghaied in the term that entered the language, then shipped to America, uh, which uh, urgently needed them for what amounted to slave labor for a big part of American Industrial Revolution, railroads, and so on. Or they could be shipped to British plantations in the West Indies and elsewhere, uh, including women uh, sold to be girl slaves, as they were called. The uh, British uh, demonstrated their reverence for civilization when Lord, El Lord Elgin's troops during the Second Opium War destroyed the Summer Palace in Peking, uh, burning it to the ground after the uh, pillage of its rich artistic treasures. Uh, certain resonance to these barbaric acts today. Uh, at the time, they were heartily applauded by the great statesman Lord Palmerston as absolutely necessary in his words. He was joined by other exemplary figures. Uh, the uh, actions owe much to the experience of Lord Elgin's soldiers, quote an English historian today, uh, Lord Elgin's soldiers who formed their view of inferior races in India during the Indian Mutiny. Uh, Indian Mutiny is the term that's used in England for the Indian Rebellion of 1857. Uh, which elicited an extraordinary outburst of savagery. Uh, we're allowed to do it to them, but they're not allowed to do it to us, a fraction of it. And in fact, the population of several states of India actually declined for the next generation. Well, all of this, uh, of course, it's only the bare sample. All that's been dispatched to the memory hole, uh, apart from corners of scholarship and people who care about it. So one hears very little about any of these things uh, in the current revival of uh, odes to empire and calls to renew its glories. Uh, many here, many in England, for example, Tony Blair's key foreign policy advisor, Robert Cooper, who uh, thoughtfully explains in his words that the need for colonization is as great as it ever was in the 19th century to bring to the rest of the world the principles of order, freedom, and justice 
which the postmodern societies of the West uh, to which they're dedicated, uh, those at the wrong end of the guns may have a somewhat different memory and perception uh, of the benefits of uh, empire, but uh, fortunately we don't hear from them. Uh, well, let me finally turn to uh, the description of Asia's role in the world today, the one that I quoted at the beginning from the Harrison Task Force study. Uh, some historians have suggested, not unrealistically, that the period of uh, European rule over a long, seen over a long stretch uh, might be seen as a kind of interregnum, that is a break of several centuries in a period of Asian dominance in many spheres. And that concern is very much alive. It's a prospect of deep concern to US planners. Uh, the Northeast Asian problem that I mentioned is part of it, and the North Korea issue fits into it. Uh, for the Washington uh, neocons, uh, the dominant policy-making group, uh, China is quite openly regarded as the great potential enemy. Uh, a good deal of military planning is geared uh, to that contingency, uh, notably missile defense, which is an offensive weapon, uh, part of a first strike capacity that's understood on all sides. The concerns over North Korea and uh, Northeast Asian integration uh, they fall in the same framework. Uh, there are, have been recent efforts to strengthen uh, India-US strategic relations, and they're partly motivated by the same concerns, uh, along with concerns about controlling the world's largest energy reserves in the Middle East, one of the main reasons why the US always insisted on controlling those since World War II was to have what uh, George Kennan called veto power uh, over others, specifically Japan case they ever got out of line. And if they move off in their own directions with their own independent energy resources, that's lost. Uh, part of the reasons that lie behind the current Iraq war. Well, there isn't much point uh, speculating about the future. Uh, human history is not something that we observe uh, from afar, like uh, the motions of the planets or the distant stars. Uh, human history is something that uh, humans create and that leaves us with some truisms that are almost too obvious to mention. We're uniquely privileged. We enjoy a legacy of freedom and of opportunity that is shared by very few. Uh, privileges confer responsibility. Uh, to no slight extent, the shape of the future is in our hands, and I don't think uh, history will look kindly on us if we do not take up that uh, opportunity and responsibility. Professor Noam Chomsky speaking at the State University of New York at Stony Brook. And that does it for our show. I want to encourage people to go to our newly launched website at democracynow.org. A very special thank you to our senior producer, Chris Abrams, who shepherded us through this process, as well as Eric Goldhaken and Jesse Hirsch of Open Flows, uh, who designed the website with Christos Deveras, also Dan Scott and Sarah Whiteley. Our website, democracynow.org. Our email address is mail, M-A-I-L, at democracynow.org. 
Democracy Now! is produced by Chris Abrams, Mike Burke, Angie Karen, Sharif Abdul Kadus, Anna Noguera, Elizabeth Press, with help from Noah Rival and Vilka Tsuras, who filmed uh, Noam Chomsky. Mike DeFilippo is our engineer with Rich Kim. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks for listening and watching another edition of Democracy Now! <laughs>